Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at, the de- at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we continue in this book that is uh, in many ways confusing and complexing to us, uh, being so unfamiliar with this Old Testament sacrificial system. I pray that you would give us understanding, not only uh, of what is being said, but what you are saying to us today. I pray that you would pierce our hearts and break through our pride, our self-sufficiency, our greed, that we might um, see the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we might receive again, or maybe even for the first time, through faith, the gift that you have promised us in him. So may your spirit be at work in us now to refine us and renew us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to begin with a question this morning um, to all of us to reflect on uh, and really to think about the associations that it brings. So as you think about God or Christianity generally, what is it that comes to mind for you? Uh, What do you feel when you think about God or you hear people talk about the Christian faith? What associations do you you make with this? Maybe it's rules. Maybe it's obligations and and a sense of pressure on your life. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's guilty feelings that you experience. 
Maybe it's a mixture of all sorts of things. Kind of like our parents. We know they love us, hopefully. Um, But, you know, it's complicated. (laughs) Maybe that's how you feel about God. The message of Scripture throughout is that God is full of life and love and joy. I say that a lot more these days because I think we need to hear that over and over and over again. God is full of life, love, and joy. God lacks nothing. And Christianity is about this life and love and joy of God. It is all about abundant life. It is all about um, the blessed life. That's one way the Bible talks about it. It's about shalom or harmony. That is the vision of Christianity. That is the message of Christianity. And that's why at Trinity we say that our, our sort of mission and identity is that we would find life together in the depths of the triune God. Because that is what we're, that's what we're for. That's what Christianity is all about. Finding life in God. The happy life. And uh, I think it's an important question to ask. How do we experience the happy life? How do we experience the good life? The blessed life? That's probably... One of the most important questions that anyone can ask themselves. How do you experience the blessed life? If you're a a, a young person today, a teenager, a kid, this is a, a, a huge question for you. You have your whole life ahead of you. And what you decide to do with your life in many ways is shaped by how you answer that question. And of course, adults, this is true of us as well. We constantly have an opportunity to think about how we're living. What are we aiming at? What is the vision of the blessed life and how we can experience that? Now, it's very common to to answer that question that we experience the good life by being good or by being smart or by working hard, all important things. Or an alternative answer that's very common is that we have to be ourselves, to self-actualize, to follow our dreams, to not compromise because we deserve the life that we want to live. And of course, others say it's all about being obedient and submitting and sacrificing. That's how you get to the happy life. That's just another form of hard work. But the reality is most of us are not experiencing the abundant life. Most of the time, we don't experience that. We don't experience the happiness, the shalom that we're intended to experience, whether you're a Christian or not. All of us struggle to experience this. And we're caught up in this endless pursuit of desire, finding satisfaction in all sorts of things, looking for it, this ongoing pursuit that leads to anxiety and disappointment and guilt and shame and fear and ultimately emptiness. And so what I want us to see today, and it might be surprising this is what we're talking about based on what you just heard read, but the message today is that Jesus has secured for us an inheritance. Through his death on the cross, He has secured an inheritance for us and he has freed us to live the blessed life. That's what I want us to get out of uh, our passage today. I think that's what, in a roundabout way, the author is getting at. And we've been looking at the book of Hebrews for several uh, weeks now, a couple of months, and we've seen over and over and over again the author um, teaching that Christ is greater. That's his message. Christ is greater. Specifically, Christ is greater than the old covenant system that the, the Jewish community that had become Christians were being tempted to um, draw back and return to their old ways under this Mosaic system. And the author is saying that is 
a fruitless task. To go back to that system is to return to something that is lesser. Christ is greater. He's greater than angels and Moses and Aaron and the whole Mosaic covenant. And he's made these long arguments about who Jesus is as the supreme in all of creation. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the heir of all things, he says. So to go back to the Mosaic system is pointless. It is but a shadow of the reality, the substance of what God is doing in the world in Jesus Christ. And so in the part of the text we're in today, he's specifically continuing this argument that Jesus is a mediator, a better mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant. And it's in this new covenant that God brings this inheritance to us. That is namely the blessed life. And so I want us to see today the promised inheritance that God offers. I want to talk about death, redemption, and heirs. So those are our four movements today. Um, And I'm going to start in verse 15 to look at our promised inheritance. Now, in verse chapters 8 through 10, remember, it's all about the better nature of the new covenant that Jesus brings and how the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is a shadow, right? Now, you might be kind of new here today, say, what's a covenant? A covenant is just a structured relationship where there are blessings on offer, there are responsibilities to live in that relationship in a particular way, and there are curses. There are penalties for violating that arrangement. Marriage is, is a covenant. That's a good example of that. You enter into it through promises. There are certain duties and obligations. There's a blessing on offer in a marriage relationship. And of course, there are curses if you do not live into that marriage properly. So like marriage, God relates to us through these structured relationships. And uh, in chapter 8, the author argues that Jesus brought a new type of structured relationship different than the one that came with Moses. And he says that that was a temporary and insufficient arrangement specifically because it could never cleanse us and renew us and bring us to God as God intended. It was always meant to be temporary and to point forward. And here in chapter 9, the author continues to argue for the superiority of the new covenant established in Jesus. Now look at verses 15, the first half of that, and here's the key to the whole text today. He says, Therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. So what is the reason for this new covenant Jesus brought? He says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Inheritance. Now, what is the promised eternal inheritance? This phrase harkens back to the big story of God throughout the Bible, all the way back to the man Abraham, the father of the Christian faith, where God promised to him, I will surely bless you, I will be your God, I will give you rest, I will use you to bless the whole entire world. And that promise made to Abraham was a restoration of the blessing of creation itself. When God created the world, he made humanity to live in happiness, in blessing, in uh, harmony. That was the vision of God's world. And it's only because we turned away from our creator that we brought a curse into the world, that we brought death and destruction and chaos. And so when God called Abraham and made this promise, he was restoring his original created design for the world to bless humanity and to be with them in relationship. After Abraham, God established a covenant arrangement with Moses and with Israel, but that was never intended to be the restoration of God's promises. It was always meant to picture. It was always meant to anticipate the reality that would come through Jesus. 
And so the point that the author is making here is that the new covenant established by Jesus is the culmination of God's work in the world to bring blessing to creation, which was lost in the fall, promised again to Abraham and restored in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I wish that we would understand this about God and his work in the world. This is so fundamental. There's a way of being connected to Christianity that fundamentally misses what God is about and how he wants to bring blessing into our life. There's a reason why we all have this deep longing for meaning and purpose and identity and security and provision and safety and satisfying work and intimacy. All those things are rooted in the fact that God created us for life, love, and joy. We were created for this blessed life with God and one another. Christianity is about the life of the world. All of us are seeking that blessing. All of us are seeking it through our careers, through popularity, through comfort, through um, our our lifestyle, our ideal lifestyle, through relationships, through um, being a good person even, and our health. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we are seeking out this happiness that God created us for. There's this... um, I guess he's a psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson who's written a good bit. He's a Christian. He's written a good bit about his work in counseling people. And he has this profound question that is so obvious, but it's worth stating. He asks often, he'll get to a point with his clients where um, things are kind of confused and he's trying to get at the bottom of what's going on with them. And he'll just say, what do you want? And it's so like such a simple question. What do you want? And it's so easy to kind of lose sight of this. What is it that we're actually seeking through all the things we complain about or we're struggling with or we're wrestling with or the stresses in life to just pause for a second and say, what is it that I'm wanting here? What's at the bottom of all these little things I'm pursuing? What's at the core of that? And as you dig down and say, well, I want this. Well, why do you want that? Well, I guess because it's that. And why do you want that? At bottom, it is because we are seeking the blessed life, fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, And the problem is we don't really know what that blessed life looks like or even how to get there. And so we kind of run through these different options. We seek the blessed life, but we never seem to be able to find it. Or perhaps, secondly, we arrive at what we thought the blessed life looked like, and it turns out not to be the blessed life at all. It's empty. And then thirdly, often, we give up thinking that there is a blessed life. And we despair that it's out there or that we could ever find it. And so as we seek this blessed life, we find death instead. We find death instead. That's what the Bible means when it talks about how we live under a curse. We turned away from our creator and death now reigns over the world as we seek the blessing that God initially created us to experience. And so, in fact, the way that we go about seeking that blessing brings death into the world. And so I want to talk about death for a few moments, looking at verses 15, kind of the last part of that verse through verse 23. And here I just want to point to this. Uh, it's kind of, it, it may not seem obvious from what he's talking about, but um, because we seek the blessed life apart from God, the giver of life, all we ever end up finding and bringing about is death in our lives. Now, this is a really tough passage to, to wade through. Uh, And so I'm hoping that I can make this uh, as clear as I can today. But remember what he's writing about and who he's writing to. He's writing to this group of Christians who are are Jewish, 
who are tempted to return back to the Mosaic system, right? And he's saying to them, going back is only going to bring more debt. It, that cannot bring blessing. It was never meant to bring blessing. And he's highlighting in that old system the way that blood functions in the biblical story and in that whole system. Now, part of what makes this passage confusing is the translation I just read um, starts talking about a will. You might have noticed that in verse 16, a will. Or some translations might say the word testament. And this goes back a long time in English translations. um, But the word that's being translated there as will or testament is the same word throughout the book for the word covenant. But because of the way that the argument goes here, some people think that um, there's a shift that's happened and they're starting to talk about a will because it talks about how someone needs to die in order to bring about something at at the end of it. And so uh, people have said, okay, it seems like this is maybe a different use of this word and he's talking about a will, like when someone dies, their inheritance issues to someone. But I don't think that's quite right. Um, I think he's just talking about covenants. And here's the logic of the passage. In verse 15, he says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant to bring the inheritance of the old covenant Um, which the old covenant could not. But how does that happen? Well, it's through the shedding of his blood. Christ, he says in in 15b, redeemed us to bring us this inheritance. He redeemed us from the curse that comes about because of the transgression of the old covenant. And then in verses 16 through 26, he's basically arguing that all the covenants after the fall had to be ratified through blood. If you're going to start a new covenant, you have to shed blood in order to cleanse people, but also to anticipate what will happen if the covenant is broken. And so he demonstrates that by talking about blood and how it's sprinkled everywhere when the first covenant was established and how Jesus does the same thing by shedding his blood when he brings about the new covenant. Now, you might be going, why, why all this talk about blood? It's seems very ancient and old-fashioned. What's this going on? Well, in the Bible, blood represents the life of a person. And to shed blood sacrificially is to say that this life, which is, has been lost, is suffering vicariously. That is, in the place of others. And so divine covenants are matters of life and death throughout the Bible because God is the source of all life. If you separate yourself from God, if you break covenant with God, it brings about the curse of death. And so every covenant that gets entered into after humanity has fallen requires this symbolic shedding of blood to actually ratify and make legal that covenant. And in ratifying it, it cleanses the sinful party to allow them at least temporarily to be in relationship with God. But it also warns them what will happen if they break that covenant. So the point of this whole argument, the assumption underneath this this logic of this text is that if there's going to be a restoration of covenant relationship with God, God has to deal with our sin and with death itself. Israel could not maintain a relationship with God because they broke covenant and they brought death about. It couldn't bring the promised inheritance. The world cannot have a relationship with God because we live in ways that bring death into the world. Now, I said something like this to someone recently, that um, all of us bring death into the world in the way that we live. And um, this person pushed back uh, pretty hard on what I was saying uh, because of, I think, a valid concern, which is the way that talking about how we're all sinful can be used by powerful people who want to abuse others or dismiss the injustice they, they perpetuate by kind of equalizing everybody. Oh, we're all sinners 
And so let's not make such a big deal about this. And that's a completely understandable concern about this language of how we all bring death into the world. But I don't think we can dismiss the reality that we do all have responsibility in bringing death into the world. Not every sin is the same degree, right? Not every uh, transgression or bad thing that we do is equal to what everybody else does. There are varying degrees of atrocities that we commit. But every single one of us contributes to the conditions in which evil arises. And we need, to, we need to believe that as Christians. You may not do the most horrible thing out there. There may be people you can point to that have done much worse things with much greater consequences, but you have to realize that you are also responsible for death in the world. You contribute to it, to the conditions in which evil arises. Let me give an example of that. Um, we live in a very polarized time right now. And not everyone is a violent extremist, right? Not everyone's out there blowing people up or, or you know, doing all sorts of violent things in the name of their ideology. Of course, there are some people out there who are doing very evil, wicked things. But friends, our rhetoric, our failure to see people who are hurting or disenfranchised or to take seriously the concerns of other people, our mocking of others, and numerous other things contribute to the conditions in which violence grows. So you may not be the one shooting but, but in some way, we have all, through our own sins, contributed to the brokenness. I mean, think about a family unit, for instance. Every family member is responsible for their own choices, right? And yet, we know that every single member of the family has an impact on everybody else in the family and how those people are growing and who they will become. And so our little infractions, our little moments of greed or impatience or unkindness or any number of other little things we might do create conditions that end up causing reactions that shape how people grow up and who they become. And if you just blow that up writ large to the human family, all of us are contributing to the conditions in which evil and ultimately death reigns. We're all complicit. And that is why the Bible talks so much about blood. That at the end of the day, all of us have brought death into the world, and God's got to deal with that death, with the death we deserve, if we're going to experience the promised inheritance. We all need redemption. And that's what um, the author talks about, especially in verses 24 through 28. Redemption. The old covenant was a relational arrangement between God and Israel that could never bring blessing. It was never going to work to do that. It was always temporary, anticipatory. It always, was always meant to teach Israel and the world about human sin and our need for redemption. The blessing of God, we are told, comes as an inheritance to the world. It comes as a gift to the world. That's what the author is saying in verse 15. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal, eternal inheritance. So he's talking about redemption here. In verses 24 through 26, he's talked specifically how Jesus accomplished this redemption. He brought about this new arrangement with God where we could receive this inheritance through faith in him, by trusting in him, by shedding his own blood one time to cleanse us, to establish a new covenant, to usher us into the presence of God. And in verses 27 through 28, there's this analogy to the high priest of Israel 
where, um, let me just read these verses. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is kind of a a strange verse. What is he talking about here? Well, the high priest in Israel, if you remember, would make all sorts of sacrifices for himself and also for Israel so that he could enter into the most holy place. And when he did that, all Israel waited to see what would happen. Would God receive our sacrifices, our atonement, these, these animals that have been killed for the priest and for all of us, would God receive that or would he strike the man dead? And so they waited eagerly. And then when the high priest reappeared, they knew that they were saved, at least temporarily. They were saved again. And the author is saying, this is what's going on with Jesus. He has come once. He has appeared to deal with our sin. And he is coming back again so that we might be saved from our sins because he has redeemed us. The blessing of God, the happy life is an inheritance. It is a gift that is received by faith. And this is where Christianity is utterly unique from every other ideology and every other way that you might imagine living in the world. And there are two common alternatives to Christianity in this regard about the blessed life. First of all, many of us, many of us are trying to live a good life in the hopes that we will be rewarded by God. Right? This is very common among religions, even in Christianity. If I'm holy and obedient and submissive, then God will bring the blessed life to me. Or maybe there's a sort of secularized version of that. If I'm a good person, whatever that might mean, then I'll get the happy life. But Hebrews is telling us over and over and over again that nobody can keep covenant with God. We don't do it. We all need cleansing. We all need redemption from the curse of the covenant. And so another way people going about this is that we say, all right, well, forget that. I'm going to try to live an authentic life. I'm going to try to live a life dedicated to the pursuit of what will make me happy. And that's going to naturally result in the blessed life. And so this can look like humanism or any number of ideologies out there where there's a path and I'm just going to live, live my life, go down this path, and that'll bring about a happy life. And maybe it's self-actualization or self-expression, whatever it might be, but it's going to bring the happy life. But friends, that is only ever temporary at best. And more commonly, it brings emptiness. And ultimately, it has no resources to deal with the sort of strange tragedies that come in life that are completely out of our control and completely squash any hope we have of achieving the happy life. Redemption, friends, is a gift. It is not a path. You need to hear that today. Christianity teaches that there is a path. There is a way to walk in the world, but it is a path for those who have been set on it as a gift, who have put their faith in Christ and have been transferred into a new kingdom and who now walk in a new way. They're not on the path to get the happy life. They have already been given the happy life. That is the good news of Christianity. It's a radically and fundamentally different understanding of the world. That Jesus, the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of all things, took on human flesh and gave his life, bearing the curse of the covenant that we deserve in order that we can be cleansed, that we might live, and then we might be given the blessing of God. And that blessing of God is received by faith and by faith alone, by resting and relying upon Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel. And so, friends, if you do that, If you put your hope all in him, then you become an heir of this eternal inheritance. And that's the final thing I want us to reflect on today. The blessed life comes 
now and in the future as a gift that we receive as heirs. Not because of anything we've done, but because God, our Father, has given it to us on account of Christ who bore the curse in our place. And so if you believe that, then you are an heir of God. And you can begin to experience this blessing now and you will have it forever. Let me just sort of name a couple of the things that you have as part of this inheritance. First and foremost, you have access to the Father. Even now, you can enter into the presence of God by praying, knowing that he's a Father who loves you, who sees you, who knows you, and who cares for you. And you can ask all that you need. You can pour out your heart to God, knowing that he hears you. And that he loves you and that he will care for you and he will give you all good things. And in the future, this means that we will actually see God in all his beauty and glory. Uh, we don't talk about this a lot, but it's, it's perhaps the primary gift of our redemption, which is that we would see the eternal beauty and glory of God forever in his presence, in the face of Christ. What a gift. I mean, uh, we all long to see beauty. It's just, a, it's just a little uh, foretaste. Anything we see here is just a foretaste of the beauty of God. And that is given to us forever as a gift in Christ. Part of this inheritance is that we're going to reign with Jesus Christ. We, even right now, when we labor and when we um, do the work that God has given us, we do that um, with meaning and with purpose as we work for the, for the life of the world and prosperity for all people. What a gift that your work has meaning even now. That's part of your inheritance. But in the future, this inheritance will also include reigning with Jesus Christ forever in the new creation in a body that is not going to decay or die ever again. And if you feel, if you feel your body betraying you right now, then you know this is, um, this is the promise of eternal life, that Christ will give me a resurrection body. Uh, the Spirit also has fellowship with us, and we have fellowship with one another, even now and, of course, forever, that God is always with us by His Spirit, empowering us, uniting us to one another, giving us joy and hope. All of these things, uh, and these are just a few, are part of the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to call you to do today is to live as an heir of God, to live in faith, and to see that this is the only thing that can bring the blessed life to you. I mean, think about it this way. If you have a financial planner and he tells you, you have all that you will need financially. You are totally covered. Whatever you might try to do in your life, you have enough. Trust me, it's there in the account. And whenever you need it, it's going to be sent to you. And, uh, and this is never going to run out. Think about how much that would impact you if you believed him, and of course, if he was telling the truth, but if you believed him, think about the peace that would bring in your life, the joy, the flexibility, the opportunity, the freedom that that would bring in your life to know that everything you need financially is covered. Well, friends, our inheritance in Christ is much more than even that. Think about what it would be like to trust your friends and family that they really love you forever and they will never leave you or forsake you. If you, if you deeply know that about your friends and family, uh, and you know they have the power to stay with you through ever what, whatever you might go through, think about the, the depth of security emotionally that that would bring in your life. Well, friends, we have even more than that in our inheritance in Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you and call you to live in the knowledge of our inheritance. Let it fuel your godliness. The, the law of God cannot fuel godliness. 
It can direct it. It can tell you where to go, but it cannot empower you to obey God and to live in the world in ways that bring life. It will just stand over you as this constant glaring sign that you aren't as good as you should be. It cannot fuel your godliness because it cannot get to the heart of your desire and tell you that you will have all things that you need. That's where you need God's grace and this promise of an inheritance. That's what fuels your, God, your godliness is this promise of abundance that belongs to you. If you believe this and you have this inheritance, then it's right and it's good and it helps you to constantly and regularly give thanks for what God has given you in all sorts of ways. It should be a practice in our life as Christians to give thanks, to specifically name the good things that God gives us now and that he will give us evermore. If we don't do that, we will quickly uh, forget the inheritance that we have and we'll be marred by uh, anxiety and fear and all, all number of things. We have to remember actively that we are provided for. That's what fuels peace in our life. And we've got to give generously and sacrificially to others, our time and resources towards God's kingdom purposes, to the church, to the needy, to other kingdom ventures. We have to be generous if we have this inheritance. Now, one of the things that Jesus warns a lot about is the danger of wealth. And I think one of the reasons he does that is because if we have a lot, it is easy to appear as if we are trusting in God's inheritance when in fact we are relying upon our earthly treasures. And the way that we make sure that we are actually trusting in God's inheritance is that we give sacrificially and generously to God's people and to those in need, showing that we are not relying on our earthly goods. So if you know you're an heir, then you are free giving to others because you have plenty. And when we suffer, and we will suffer in this life, we will face many tribulations. You can press on if you know that you're an heir. That whatever you're facing will not be an end to you. That the story isn't over and that the best is yet to come. So you can grieve and lament and hope, but you do that knowing that you are an heir of God. Verse 27 is worth reflecting on as we come to a close. It says, it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. We don't really pay a lot of attention to this at Trinity. Uh, we may in the future, but uh, this is now the season of Lent in the Christian calendar. Wednesday was what we call Ash Wednesday, and basically the message of Ash Wednesday is you are going to die, to put it bold, uh, bluntly. And that's what the author is saying here. It is appointed for man to die. All of us are going to die. All of us are going to face God, and we are going to answer for the life he gave us. How did you use the life I gave you? Did you steward it well? There's an appointed time for all of us, and we do not know when it is. And so if you do not know if you have God's happy life, his inheritance, then today is the day for you to put your faith in Christ and to trust him, to believe that Jesus bore the curse for you. But if you do have your hope in Jesus, then the next part of the verse is important as well. Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. The Christian life is lived eagerly waiting for Jesus. This is the life that has many joys to offer. Thank, thank the Lord. He gives us many joys and blessings even now. But a Christian who has got this inheritance in Christ eagerly awaits the blessed life that is to come. That God promises not to give us just life and 
fun and all that, but God promises to give us himself. That we would live in his presence, seeing his beauty, in his love and fellowship with others, forever in God's good world. That is the promise. And we must live eagerly awaiting that together. As we go to the table, all of what I've said today is wrapped up in this meal. This meal looks backwards to Christ bearing our curse for us, that he gave his body and shed his blood in our place. This meal right now celebrates that God is with us and that we are his heirs, that we have all good things as we cling to Christ in faith. And this meal looks forward to when Christ will return as we eagerly await him so that we might enter into his kingdom and live with him forever in his presence. So I invite you to come to this table in faith in Christ, remembering who you are so that you might be fueled and energized to live the blessed and happy life even now. Let's pray together.